0: You're listening to the Above the Mug Show, a podcast that highlights people whose passions drive their life. My name is Lucas Spinoza and I own a coffee shop. Every day I meet dozens of interesting people and today I sit down with one of them to inspire you to live your life passion-forward. What is going on, everybody? It's your friend Lucas Minosa coming at you from my office inside of the Black Sheep Lounge right here in the heart of downtown Welland, Ontario. You are listening to Above the Mug, a podcast that highlights positive people, and we're here to show you how you can use your passions to live your life passion forward. Today, joined by an incredibly special guest, we have Natalie Prue, an amazingly talented person. See, I I did a pause because I said it correctly. I was so nervous. I was going to (laughs) mispronounce your last name. But Anyway, Natalie Prue does a multitude of different things. I'm really excited to have her on for uh, many different reasons, one of which is we share a love of death and coffee, uh, and I think that's how we met. Um, so anyway, to let you know what Natalie does, she do, does all sorts of ceremonies uh, like funeral services, bereavement support and education, and she's also a thanatologist.
1: That's right. You got death right. and
0: dying. Love it. Okay, now let's jump into it. What in the hell made you want to get into the death industry? It could be a long answer. That's okay. It could
1: be a long answer. Um, My cousin died by suicide when I was in grade eight. And I did the long mosey up north. Mm -hmm. And the funeral director there was a female. And she had a big bun and a beautiful scarf. And she was awesome. And all it was was how natural she made it. That was Mm -hmm. it. It looked like a really fun job. She, she was perfect and she looked perfect and everyone listened to her Mm -hmm. and she involved me. She became my, excuse me, French girl. She (coughs) became my friend Mm. in three days and then I let it settle. I forgot about it in high school. I was head of the spirit committee, head of student council, completely not what people would associate with darkness and death. Mm -hmm. And... That was it for me. One day, I was choosing a co-op. I didn't know what I wanted to do. My mom made a joke about being a mortician, like Tracy, and I looked in the binder, and there it was.
0: Amazing. And so a
1: co-op at 14. I was a little early, and never left the funeral home.
0: So Tracy's the name of the of the uh, director that uh, you at your cousin's funeral.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Amazing. So. That that I th- I think comes with a whole bunch of different feelings. When you're young and you see someone who takes a situation, which you can almost expect what's going to happen. You know people are going to cry. You know they're going to be upset. Um, you know there may be some emotions flaring. But to have someone who is in such control, especially when you're young and in a situation where you don't know, you know what's going to happen, it's got it's gotta do something to you and leave an impact, which obviously carried you. So that's really uh, amazing that that happened.
1: No, I. I look at it and think it was exactly what needed to happen at the time. And I don't believe that death happens to teach us a lesson because, you know, my cousin's life would not have ended to teach me a lesson. Mm -hmm. But in his death, I learned that a life needed to be honored at the age of whatever you are in grade eight.
0: Oh, you were in grade eight. I thought you were eight. No, I was in grade eight. You were in grade eight. eight. Okay. So then you would have been probably 12, Yeah. 12, 13. Yeah.
1: And from then on, I saw how many people came to his side to honor him. Mm -hmm. And I knew that suicide happened at that time. I thought suicide happened because he was sad and he felt lonely and had no friends. Mm -hmm. I read his letter. My parents were really open with me. Mm -hmm. So I had an idea of that. And from then on, it was a creating a creating moment for me create spark in your life. I was already a really happy-go-lucky kid. For sure. And the moment I went into high school, I was the go-getter of do all things fun and join everything you can. But it brought that that death moment to life for me, mm-hmm. the reality uh, of it.
0: And that's one thing, um, were you close to the same age as your cousin at the time, or no?
1: No, he was, he was 18 years old. 18? We were close. Mm-hmm. He was the one I looked up to, the one I was so eager to visit. Mm-hmm. But we weren't at the same level, but I wanted it to be just like him. Mm-hmm. I thought he had it all.
0: Yeah. And I, I would assume that you've been open like this forever um, in your life because I think people like you and even myself, I'm very open about traumatic experiences or sad or mad experiences in my own life because I think it helps give people perspective on who you are. Uh, and then it makes life a lot easier when there's transparency. But I know you do a lot of public speaking and I know you're open when you speak in public because you've done it with me when we first met, but, was it always easy for you when you started speaking in front of people to, to give them kind of everything hard on your sleeve?
1: No. Um, but it was the best learning experience that I had. And I learned very quickly that you could cry in public and gain the trust and gain, gain stories. And the more I shared, the more people shared. And it was like a drug to me. Mm-hmm. It was a need to feed off of them. And you realize that it was a circle of help. It wasn't just me. Um, it took a lot for me to speak up on childhood sexual abuse. It took many years to admit to an eating disorder that I carried for a long time. And
0: congratulations on that. That was a little over a year ago now, right? You, you came out online or was it two years ago? It
1: would have been two years ago online, mm-hmm. but I had spoken to high schools. Yeah. And I found it funny that my entire career involved me telling people to be open and honest and truthful to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I was like, how honest am I being with myself? Yep, fair. And I spoke up and boom, you know, the feedback was mostly positive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I received some messages that said, you shouldn't be diagnosed. You're not skinny enough to have an eating disorder. <laughs> I'm like, oh, thank you. I know that was my goal. But <laughs> didn't oh didn't achieve my birth weight yet. <laughs> Thanks, Thank you. Um, and then there were the others that said, me too, mm-hmm. you know, and you listen to both of them and you decide who you're going to be friends with and share a coffee with and who you're not. Yep. So,
0: no, I think that's amazing. Um, I, I've always been very fascinated, um, with why people love the things that they love, and I think it speaks a lot to, of course, your surroundings when you grow up, but a, a lot of it, the interests are learned, a lot of these are, are learned, um attributes and people that they really just start to appreciate as they get older and as they meet new people and i've always been someone uh like when i was a little kid i would draw monsters and vampires and i used to have books on natural disasters and i was always like the shy kid right but not not the goth kid where people looked and they could tell that i was into that kind of stuff they just didn't know until i started looking the way that i do and so i've always um I've always appreciated meeting other people who are happy-go-lucky people, and they're not faking it. They're not trying to be that way. You just are happy people but have kind of dark fascinations. You know, there's actually a – I don't know if you've heard of it. I'm sure you have uh, a new type of tourism called dark tourism, and it's people going to especially Europe and places where, like, for instance, obviously uh, Easy One Holocaust happened, right? Uh, They'll go to concentration camps. They'll go to – here in, in North America, Salem and see the, you know, for the witch trials and things like that. So what do you think that is, is so fascinating about death to people? Is it really just the mystery or is it something bigger than that? What do you think it is?
1: I think the dark tourism is is a little different than what fascinates us about death yeah. because there's, there is a difference to it, almost a darkness. If you do study that, it tends to be more in, in tragedy or mm-hmm. in the mysterious. But when we look at the new movement in death culture and the sudden interest in home funerals and green burials mm-hmm. and actually having conversations, it's because it's been the one thing that we're guaranteed that we've been hushed to talk about mm-hmm. it's the one thing that we protect with euphemisms you know someone passed away they didn't die and when you say the word die like well that's rather crass mm-hmm. no no it dies our car dies a plant dies or animals die but grandpa passed away so we've sanitized and and we did that as a a funeral movement almost in our culture. And it was one of the reasons that I got out and went into thanatology studies Mm -hmm. was we had sanitized death so much and we had taken it into our industry in a form of protecting the people. So with amazing intent and and directors out there have hearts of gold. But what happened was if you look at other places in the world, death remained in the family. Mm -hmm. Grief remained in the community it takes a village to mourn yeah right and we we embalmed people to preserve them and to make them look alive instead of embracing the changes of their death yeah so in the time all done through protection and of course this is my opinion and i'm completely supportive of those who feel otherwise but we sanitize so much in protection and in love that we changed our dynamic. Our medical system was suddenly a fail if someone died, as yeah. opposed to death being natural. That's why it's so amazing to see the, the movements in end-of-life care and in hospice care. Yep. It's not a failure to die. It's not putting days in the life. It's putting life in the days.
0: Yeah. No, I, I'm... Amazed! Thank you for that answer. It's it's. I, I have so much to think about that. I usually I have quick. I can snap back and ask another question. But I you're leaving me with so much to to comprehend. I love that. Um, I find North American culture. We can call it Western culture. Is very hypocritical about death because you talk about this sanitization, which I agree with. We, we make it soft. we say passing away or they've moved on or whatever you want to use as a term to soften the reality of which is death, right? Um, but then it'll be the same people that do that, that are in a vehicle and a funeral procession's going by and they're speeding around stopped cars to get to McDonald's faster. And it, it's bizarre to me that when it's not death in their life that they're dealing with, that they don't, they don't feel pain in the same way, but when there's an obvious tragedy, like when uh, a young person, like let's say nine years old, dies of of cancer uh, unexpectedly, you know, it seems like a whole community comes together and mourns. and And I believe that it actually does happen. It's happened many times in Welland, and the communities come together. and um, There's a, a another anniversary coming up next month um, of of another awesome community person who had passed of cancer who was young. Uh, and we're still, I mean, eight, nine years later, still having annual events to, to, uh, to mourn and to celebrate. Uh,
1: and to honor the legacy. And to honor the right? legacy. To keep the memory alive. And it sounds cliche, mm-hmm. but there's truth to it. Yeah. You know, if you look at Facebook or these YouTube videos, they talk about different types of death. You know, the, the last time that you walked to this earth and then the last time that your name was spoken. Yeah. And, and that can really resonate with you. But just to kick back a little, and you you mentioned Western culture, and I think mm. that we all fall into it, and I did as well. And I would say Westerners have done this, and we've really gone backwards in our death education and our acceptance of dying. But Westerners include Mexico.
0: That's they, true, and Mexico. They've not got, the got
1: it going on. Notice my awesome day well, of yep. the dead T-shirt here.
0: Well, that's why I I switched it from North America to Western. I was I wasn't trying to include Mexico because I. Yeah. Uh, Dia de la Yeah, yeah, and Do. they they celebrate, Werta?
1: they honor. It's honoring the day of the dead. Yeah, right. It's it's bringing death into life, just as much life, just as much as life belongs into death. Mm.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a a great point, and and I know with um you know even myself being Italian, Italians are. Like it's forever, more like mourning the dead is forever. Like it's just like <laughs> that. My no no no, still, they talk about every time you go there, they talk about who passed away and how long ago it was. And yeah. it's just part of the culture. You talk about it, it's normal for
1: sure. We mm. we used to have you know inside jokes in the industry because you know, especially with our Italian families, mm. they'd wear their funeral suit. Yes. and they'd be buried in their funeral suit and in the inside pocket were the prayer cards of the last 117 funerals that they had been to <laughs> in order and clearly leafed through mm-hmm. frequently, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a culture. But even within the Italian culture, there's different generations which are wanting different things. Yeah. That's why when I sit and I meet with a family, whether it's in grief support or as a celebrant or as a director, I will ask them, what is important to you with your faith and your background and your culture? We can't assume, mm-hmm. right? We can't assume that everyone with the same faith wants the same funeral, because they don't want the same meal. Yeah, they don't want the same music. Why would they want to die or honor their dead in the same way?
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Um, we've talked a lot about death, and we're still going to a little bit, but. I'm curious as to why you got into the education side uh, of bereavement, because I know that um, as a fellow uh, death, how, how would I say that? Not aficionado because I'm not an expert, but appreciator we- of death culture, maybe we can say. Um, I, it's easy to, for myself to say why it's interesting to me, but the hardest part of death is dealing with those that are still around to deal with it right? So what made you want to jump into that? Because it's got to be a sensitive topic for for some people.
1: It is. And what I noticed was people were really receptive to a real person being real in front of them saying, it's okay that this really sucks today. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's okay that you feel this way. There's time to joke. There's time to cry. And, and I saw that we were going in a direction of repetition, or I felt that my job was repetitive for me. Mm-hmm. It was we went in, we received a call, we took someone into our care, we arranged a ceremony. We only have a certain amount of time. And I thought there had to be so much more. And I loved public speaking, and I loved all of the other aspects in my job that aren't death and dying. And I thought, why can't I do this too? Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at putting a message across, and I was really good at being corrected. Yeah, And that was the biggest <laughs> learning curve. And I can tell you the moment it happened was in a conference. And I was proudly speaking of how I felt that I had really gone further in taking care of babies who had died. Mm-hmm. And, and how I had decided through reading and, and speaking to people that when I was dressing the baby, I made sure they brought in their own little uniforms for them, you know, the cutie little onesies. And then someone challenged me and I had been a speaker at this conference and it was about 12 years ago and they said, for someone who's trying so hard, why are you robbing a parent of one of the few firsts they could have by dressing their child? And I remember thinking, well, because I know the changes that happen in the body and it's not what they expected. And I went, yeah. And then I stopped and I went, you're right. And I realized that there was so much to learn from every individual family. And that I could go to school for another 10 years, and I did. (laughs) But it was the thousands of families that I had sat with that taught me everything. And if I could blend those two, I thought that I could make a difference. You said you're no death expert. You're as much an expert in death and dying as I am. The difference is I have some of the the academics behind it and the understandings of the why and maybe a different way of questioning
0: what happens to the body.
1: Absolutely. And, and I can put that together and it can give me a really great kickoff to start a conversation. But the truth is the conversations that I start need to be led by the person. Mm -hmm. And there are people in death education who will blatantly call themselves a death expert. And I'll see it like flash across YouTube and I, I, I shudder. Because we can't be a death expert. We can study thanatology. We could sit by the dying. But it's so individual that you're never going to have that. Mm -hmm. So when I could go into education and and do programs like Invite Death to Dinner, which were amazing programs because people invited me for dinner. They fed me. I got a glass of wine, and I got to talk to them about their death and dying.
0: That was really cool. Amazing. Really cool.
1: We we did so many cool things. And when we brought comfort into it and we brought fun and we brought death into the norm, everyone had questions. And everyone had assumptions that were really wrong. Like Mm -hmm. the amount of questions or things I've been told that happened during embalming that don't happen. Or the things that I've been told that someone's neighbor, whose cousin, whose brother-in-law saw at a funeral home. They don't happen, mm-hmm. but they're fascinated, and broken telephone starts. So I thought, if we could start this movement, and it's not just me, there's so many people on it now, to just bring it back, mm-hmm. take the culture, and take the the obvious end to our life, and discuss it as it deserves to be discussed.
0: I love it. Now, I didn't mention in the beginning, but you have an organization called Facing the Sun. Yes. Right? Can you explain a little bit about what you do there and uh, what your plans are with it moving forward in the near future?
1: I was really hoping you would tell me what to do with (laughs) (laughs) it. That would have been wonderful. Um, So Facing the Sun came from me kind of making the official move out of funeral services and into bereavement education and support. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I loved wearing a lot of hats, but I needed to focus if I was going to go back to school full time about four or five years ago. And the quote it came from was, face the sun and the shadows fall behind you. And I really liked it because if you looked at the light, Mm -hmm. it gave you some brightness, right? But it accepted the shadows and the dark and it was a whole package. Mm -hmm. I also liked it because it was uplifting and I don't just do funerals. I had weddings, so I thought it was perfect. And what I want to do with that or what I am doing with that first, I guess, is also... Above funeral services, I can go into freelance, and my specializations became child grief, um, end-of-life care for children with terminal illnesses, suicide. That was something that I went in as a specialization as well of infant and pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. So those are what I call my babies and death care. They're my passions. And what I would do is freelance into a funeral home if they, say, had one of those circumstances of death and I could remain as a director and be bereavement support for the family at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mostly it's education to companies um, and to organizations. So I'm either hired in to speak to a company when they have a loss by death at work, or even this morning was how to speak to your colleagues because they had a colleague coming back. And the death that they experienced was really traumatic to so them. So how to,
0: how to deal with how, the language to use to someone who yeah. lost somebody.
1: Basically off record, what not to say to someone who's grieving. And <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, you can write a book on that. Don't start a sentence with at least, <laughs> you know, things like that. Yeah. Oh
0: my God. It,
1: it happens. Right. And so there's that part. There's the educational part um, for conferences, for keynotes, for showing <laughs> Funeral homes, different ways to think because they're changing and they're progressing and they're awesome about it. And of course, there's the ceremonial part. So I sat through so many ceremonies that could have been about a chair. It was a cookie cutter, listen through, try. And then I went into something called celebrant training, which was to become a funeral celebrant, Mm. honoring a life of anybody of whatever faith, whatever culture, whatever dynamic. And even then we were given these services, like these cut and paste services, but instead it was like, insert your personal paragraph here. (laughs) And I was like, okay. So I'd sit through those and it was the same service all the time with a new poem and two paragraphs. And I thought, you know what? Nobody is annoyingly wordy like I am. So I'll write it start to finish. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about this was in my ceremony of honoring a life, I will also teach them To look inside of themselves on their opinions of death and dying. So I'm able to honor and educate. And those are the two things that I feel are hugely important in life to me.
0: For sure. I I really like that perspective because, you know, I haven't been to many funerals, I've been to a few. But kind of my philosophy on it before, like when I was younger, was, you know, I didn't want to be around funerals. I wouldn't go to anybody's funeral except for my parents, brother, and, you know, maybe now Katie, my girlfriend. Uh, And and that was kind of what I put in my head. Is like, those are the only funerals I'll go to when they die, if they die before me. Um, But then I started, as I got a little bit older, I started realizing that what I didn't like about funerals, it wasn't that... Uh, it was me feeling I'd be insensitive to people. It's I didn't want to be around insensitive people at funerals. <laughs> and so it's a, precisely what you had just said was, you know, these cookie, cutty, uh, cookie cutter ceremonies are really difficult to be a part of because, you know, John was a really good man and he loved his family and bop, mm-hmm. bop, bop. It's like, what an awful way to kick off the end of a life. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? And, and I agree with you. I I think you need to personalize and... Um, recently I went to a viewing of a, of a new friend. So, uh, it wasn't the, per- the friend that passed, it was, uh, part of their family and it was the least close per, I've never met this person. It's, it's the most distant I've ever been at a viewing or a funeral to a, mm-hmm. to the person that passed. Uh, but I felt an obligation to go because it's about supporting the person that's here, not always about honoring the person that's gone because it is but that's for the family that's for the friends
1: it's both you're but you need perfectly to, it's the right. support
0: yeah it's the support group right and uh, I didn't feel that way because they didn't make it they didn't make it so dry I went there and the the I don't want to give it away because I don't want to be too specific but anyway the person who I was going to support was smiling and hugging people and laughing and joking around and it was at first, it, I was taken aback by it. I was like, this is bizarre. This I expected it to be completely <laughs> tragic. And, uh, and that's really what changed my mentality was that. Because I felt an obligation to go to this one. And then after that viewing, I thought, I've been looking at this all wrong. It's not how I feel about funerals and how I feel about being insensitive. It's how insensitive funerals can be. And it's exactly what you were talking about.
1: It's it's one of those things that you realize there's actually a place. And I always want to make sure that I don't shame a cookie cutter funeral because mm. there are some people who it suits. And they if, need that. Right. If you look at at uh, some page in my website, I forget how I said it, but I said, should your funeral be boring? Absolutely. If your life was. <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> right. I. I, I do plan on dying with an obituary that has nothing to do with me. You know, mm-hmm. Her an avid sports fan who loved to be outdoors, you know, really throw him a loop at the end. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe that everybody needs this custom, fun funeral. Mm-hmm. Because it's okay to mourn and need to sit in that space that you're at there too. Mm-hmm. But that's why I like meeting with a family and feel that... I can bring a difference in my understanding of bereavement and mourning because I can get a true sense of what they need above and beyond when I was an officiant without the bereavement education, because sometimes they do need to start there. Mm -hmm. And then I have other families that we rock out to the theme of survivor and I'm (laughs) dropping F-bombs through the entire thing because that's who that person was. Yeah. Right? Right. I just make sure to, you know, put out a disclaimer there that this is true suited to the life. Yeah. Does that win me over everyone? Most of the time. Do I get a few skunk eyes here and there because it's not the place? I do. For sure, yeah. And that's okay. That's completely okay because it's my job to cater to what my inner circle and that immediate family needs. Of course. And, yeah. and I make it very evident in the ceremony.
0: That's awesome. I, uh, As you were saying that, it reminded me of something I saw uh, recently online. I can't remember where, but there was a a younger guy who had passed away. He was probably about my age, 25, maybe, maybe 30 at, at the most. And um, he was a funny guy. Uh, it, he was dying of a, of a terminal illness and they knew, but it took a long time. It took like 10 years. And so what he uh, what he did was he pre-recorded uh, a message for everyone at the funeral and he was in the casket in the ground awesome. and they put the, the clip on and it was knocking, saying, let me out of here, let me out of here. And the, everyone's like, at first they were shocked and then they all started laughing. Because I don't know what the guy's name was, but that is him, right? That was what he would have wanted. And that's what he did want because that's what he directed people to do when he did die. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that I I love personally myself because I'm not going to be a casket funeral guy. Um, I'm going to try and do it the most responsible way po- uh, possible. Just
1: Green I- burial in yeah. a burlap coffee bag. It's legal now.
0: <laughs> and I don't even know if I'll go that <laughs> far because I've donated. Uh, I did it this past week. I, I didn't even realize how easy it was uh, because there's a difference between being an organ donor and being a tissue donor. Yes. And then there's also a difference between whether it's for scientific purposes like research or if it's for saving a life that's right and so I saw something by Service Ontario they posted online saying register to be a tissue donor and I knew that it was an organ donor but I, I didn't know about the tissue and everything else so I clicked on it and I found out I was only signed up for one of the four options so I'm like put me in I don't care. put me <laughs> in that body's museum they have you know like charge admission I don't use me yeah. for whatever because what good is a body when you're dead and right. of course you got to respect people's wishes if they don't want their body touched if that's their faith that's their thing but for me, I'm like, if I can be useful after death, that is exactly what would be suitable to me because I want to be useful while I'm alive. So I'd want to be duly useful when I'm past, right?
1: Absolutely. And and everybody is allowed their choices in that. And mm. and the biggest thing that I think is really important is to express those wishes to others, your loved ones, your hated ones, whoever might be in charge. <laughs> Write
0: because it down, put it in a safe.
1: Absolutely. because Well, don't put it in a safe. But with a combination. <laughs> with a combination on the outside. Right? And... That, that makes me want to touch on something just on the education part mm-hmm. to make people aware. Remember that all of our wishes, with the exception of our will, which is a legal document, all of our funeral arrangements, if we're prearranged, are completely able to be canceled upon our death. So trust your executor. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily even fit to where we were going, but when you said that whole point of honor someone's wishes, make sure that the person who's there... To make your wishes known, are going to honor them. Yeah, for sure. So
0: pick the right um, person to take care of your end of life care. For sure, <laughs>
1: absolutely. Um, when it comes to health, when it comes to your wishes in organ and tissue donation, mm-hmm. I'm a huge advocate on that because I have sat with families who have been able to meet the people that their child had saved through organ donation. Mm-hmm. And, and the comfort it gives. And I've sat with bereaved families who have experienced extra life in their family members because of organ donation. Hmm. So I'm, I'm annoyingly a big pusher of that, and I'm, I'm what they get to call with Canadian Blood Services, I think it's a, a blood donor champion. If you have it, give it, if you can, right? Yep. Why not step up and give someone, if you don't give them an entire life, give them a few more days, a few more hours, it's all vital.
0: Absolutely. And, um, that's another thing too, when we talk about executors is a, a lot of the time what happens at the end of life for people is their executors, if they're not strong people, it can be an absolute disaster because I know, uh, I've seen it in a few instances in my own family and, uh, and with friends who, you know, they were executive executors or they know the executor and they're letting other people push them around and say, no, he would have wanted this or he would have wanted this. And it's like, no, listen, this is my decision. This is what's going to happen. This is what I know that they would have wanted to do. So uh, it's more than just respecting the executor. The exec- executor needs to be able to put their foot down and, and make sure that the right things happen, right? So,
1: they, they need to be able to be in a place that... They feel secure in the choices they're making. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily that they're a huge mess, but it's a lot of pressure thinking that I want to do this in the best way for the person that I'm missing the most right now. Mm -hmm. In many cases, I mean, there are executors who are very detached or hired, different story. And I think if we can take anything from that, because we want to look out for our family and our friends after. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that we through survey after stat after survey we're concerned about those we left behind right Mm -hmm. so that's why it's so imperative to go through advanced care planning for your end of life so that's not even funeral planning that's who's going to make that decision for you if your health takes you to a place that you're incapable of making it well, you can ease that, I don't like saying this word, but I'll say it. You can ease that burden <laughs> yeah. on your family by, while you're healthy and well, discussing it yeah. openly. And, and I'm a big believer in discussing your death, too, because I have seen for 20 years how overwhelmed it is. I watched them go in, and I've seen families feel they need to get a better casket to look better. And I'm like, that's not how it works, people. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's not how it works, but they want to give their best to everything. So if you can start that conversation, and that's where I go back to why I want to be in bereavement education, and make it as easy to talk about what you want when you're dying or dead as it is to say what you want for lunch tomorrow, then you're laughing because you're giving giving your truths and what you want to your loved ones, and they will probably honor it. Absolutely. And I like to tell people, depending on what group I'm speaking to, but I'll speak to your crowd, talking about death and dying doesn't make you die any more than talking about (laughs) sex makes you pregnant.
0: Uh, Yeah, I guess that depends on who you ask. Right? (laughs) There's a lot of uh, really mischievous toilet seats out there.
1: Fair. (laughs) enough <laughs> <laughs> then just watch where you're talking
0: okay yeah exactly <laughs> and
1: at that point that's not my problem
0: <laughs> exactly
1: but it's it's a conversation that some people are afraid to have because they're like this might make me die mm. Prearranging your funeral is not going to make you die any faster mm-hmm. and you can prearrange your funeral on paper in your living room you don't have to go in and spend money it's just make your wishes known mm-hmm. and let them change yeah. My, my wishes have changed so much lately I don't even know what I want anymore actually at this point I'm like pick what you need because <laughs> I feel so overwhelmed and I'm just gonna have to go with funerals or for the living and I asked my four and my six year old daughter and said do you want me buried or cremated because those are the conversations I have with my little kids which
0: as any responsible responsible parent should
1: and they want me cremated so I'm small and they can carry me around and play <laughs> Okay. So at this point, that's cool. I'm going to be with my dog Lexi. And if I go tomorrow, that will be their choice and that's going to give them comfort.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, One thing about death that I always find funny is people associate death with risk a lot. Uh, And fair enough. I mean, there's obviously aspects of it that make sense, but uh, we'd never actually take risk seriously. And how I can say that is, you know, people decide I'm not going to go mountain biking or I'm not going to go skydiving or they hold themselves back a lot because of the fear of death. Yet one of the number one causes of death in, in Canada is car accidents. And every one of us is in a car pretty much every day. And if even if you're not in a car, you're in a bus. And buses kill people. Trucks kill people. Planes <laughs> kill people. All these things we decide to just throw ourselves in, kill a lot of people every day. Uh, and it happens every day in our area. People die of, uh, of of car accidents. So I always like showing death in my own life and, and thinking about death because it makes me realize how silly it is to not live, you know, because we know it's, I mean, it's finite. We know it's certain death is coming and, uh, it's not a threat. It's not to scare you. It is. It's a fact of life. Uh, And the beautiful thing is we have a life to consider death. Uh, and uh, there's hundreds of trillions of unborn babies, uh, and I don't mean this in abortion way. I mean this in sperm cell way. that just never get the chance to be alive. <laughs>
1: you don't hear that sentence very often. <laughs> no, it's true.
0: Uh, they they never get the opportunity to even worry about death because yeah. they don't get the life. So uh, I really I really appreciate death as a positive a positive motivator for life. Um, and I don't mean that as you should be reckless because you're gonna gonna die anyway. But don't hold yourself back because of fear. Uh, and, and it's a silly thing. But um, since we're getting close to the end here, I'd like to ask you, what do you think the most important thing is generally for people to consider in their life about death? It's a big question.
1: A big question. And and it would have a lot of big answers. I think the most important thing to consider is that it's natural as birth. and And our bodies are made to die and that death is not a failure in life or a failure on the medical system but the fact that our death is coming as you just kind of segued into the fact that we know in our heads we will die is the reason that we wake up motivated at all Mm -hmm. if we had an endless life we would have a very different society and I laugh at your your comments because I'm I'm terrified of death for myself Mm -hmm. I, I can rock it through for my friends and the idea of me, not okay. I'm almost more comfortable with handling the death of my children than trying to accept that I will die. Uh, interesting. And and it is, but it also keeps me going to learn about it and figure out why and working against it to accept it.
0: Yeah. Right? I love that.
1: And, and I think that's it. Just make it natural. Make it a part of your life, an easy conversation and the big hurrah of a life done well, Mm -hmm. right? No matter, no matter what age we die, whether it's two, whether it's 20, whether it's 101, that life is valuable to someone. That life will be missed and that life deserves to be honored. And if you can have a place in honoring your own death, I think that's awesome because you have a big seat at the table honoring your own life. Yeah. Right
0: now. Beautiful way to end this off. I appreciate you being here. But before we go, the most important thing is everyone on this podcast has to make a living doing what they enjoy. And the only way they can do that is if people give you money. So <laughs> so to give you more money, if someone here that's listening falls in love and needs to get married or their best friend dies in a skydiving accident this week, how can they find what you do?
1: How can they find what I do? I am mostly on social media, so that's where I get most of my reach-outs, and it's Mm -hmm. Facing the Sun Incorporated on Facebook and on LinkedIn, and I'm not cool enough for Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram, (laughs) Um, but I try. Snapchat would be
0: kind of weird if they're like, yeah, here's my grandpa.
1: (laughs) Right? You never (laughs) know. I've, I've received... Picture very similar to that as a death notification. So it's a new society. Um, my website is uh, in the works to be flipped over. I'm very excited, but it's facing the sun Dot life, as in life and death. Cool. So I am easily reached there. My my cell phone is open texting. Any way that's a contact that makes people comfortable is the way that I prefer. And that tends to be through email and, and through social media.
0: Awesome. I'm going to link all of it in the bottom of this episode anyway. But it's been an absolute pleasure. And all I very I f- much appreciate being here and sharing so many intimate things with me. Uh, Natalie Prue, everybody. Death freaking genius. She won't admit it, but I love it. <laughs> makes it so comfortable to talk about. Thanatologist. Just public speaker. Everything. So thank you for being here. And we will see you guys next week. Hey, friend. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Above the Mug. For more episodes, check us out at AboveTheMug.com. Make sure to like, share, subscribe, review, comment, tag your friends. This way you're not the only person listening to this thing. We come up with a brand new podcast every Sunday at noon, so we'll see you next week on Above the Mug.